Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, we shared last week that we felt that the Lord had directed us to these letters, to these seven churches. I anticipate we will examine our hearts before the Lord, certainly with each passing week, but he has led us back to these letters. We will not at length discuss what we did not look at in chapter 1, but we'll refer back to some of the things that were said there. But this first letter written to the church in Ephesus. John writing at the instruction of the Lord himself. So these are certainly the Lord's words. The Lord says to John, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and will remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. These letters that we undertake to look at, and certainly this one that we want to look at today to the church in Ephesus, are written in the context of the Lord's return. And in the closing verses of chapter 1 and in other places in chapter 1, that context is made abundantly clear. In verse 8 of chapter 1, the Lord says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So God tells us without any lack of clarity that he is the Alpha and the Omega. The church in Ephesus has lost its first love. That is the, that is the disease that has and has started to afflict them. There may have been a lot of other things to say that, that followed from that, but they'd lost their first love and Jesus is writing to them. And he's writing to them and before he begins the letter, he reminds them that he is the Alpha and the Omega. The, in the Greek alphabet, there's 24 letters and the first letter is Alpha and the last letter is Omega. This is a figure of speech using opposites that place emphasis on the whole. To say that he is the Alpha 
and the omega assumes and communicates that he's also everything in between. It's like saying from head to toe. That's another phrase that we use. Or heaven and earth to include everything. So the Lord God says that he is the first and the last and everything in between. The church in Ephesus is struggling with having lost or abandoned, as it is said here in the ESV, their first love. And I believe that as Jesus reminded them in the first chapter, as he reminds us today, that remembering that he is the Alpha and the Omega and everything in between is important for us to keep in view. You see, I believe that acknowledging God as the everything in between in our lives is where I believe we most often struggle. The everything in between. The time between salvation and the time that we go to be with Him in heaven. We easily and should recognize that Christ is in the beginning when we are saved. We don't have any problems remembering that, I hope. Certainly hope that is true for you. That we see Christ as the Alpha, the beginning. John chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus told Nicodemus, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless he begins anew, unless he's made new, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless you be saved, unless you be born again. Born again where spiritual life begins. And Jesus is there in that moment when we are saved and he is the Alpha. He is the beginning of life. Without Christ, there is no beginning of life. Not true life. Not life that is everlasting, that was intended for human beings from the very beginning. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, we are told, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He's, he's new. This is the beginning. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 goes on. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So we recognize and we see very clearly that Christ is the in the beginning. He is the Alpha. The old's passed. The new has come. We've been born again. We also know that He is the Omega. He is the end. I Philippians chapter 1, verse 23, Paul says this, I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. For that is far better. Paul looking ahead to the omega of his life, the last letter we might say of his life, he was looking ahead and he had confidence and trust that God was going to be there and he knew that it would be better then than it was at the time in this life. Two verses prior to that, Paul had said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So we see very clearly, at least I think we should, that Jesus Christ is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and He is the end. Of course, more than just of our individual lives, He is the Alpha and the Omega of all things. He's the beginning of it all, and He will, and He is the end of it all. But He is also everything in between. 
We can struggle there, I think. We can struggle maintaining that awareness that God is not just the beginning and the end. He's not just the Alpha and the Omega, but He is everything in between that really matters. All of it. God wants to fill the alphabet of our lives. He wants to be every letter. He doesn't want to be merely the beginning and the end. He isn't merely the beginning and the end. He's everything. We continue with Christ as we began with Him. And if we did not begin with Him, then we cannot continue with Him. But He is the beginning. And God wants to fill our lives with Him because He is the Alpha and the Omega. And all the world and all the earth one day, and we might read this later, is going to see that. He must be first. He will be last. But in your life and in mine, is He everything in between as well? Is He from that first moment of salvation when peace came and as we look and anticipate the end of our life, knowing He will be there. But is He everything in between? The beginning, of course, is life-changing. It is a time of great joy and excitement. We look to the end of our lives with a certain anticipation and trust that our Redeemer will take us home to our eternal and heavenly home with Him. And that is good. We must see Him as the beginning. We know that He will be the end. But there are 22 letters in the, in the Greek alphabet beyond the Alpha and the Omega, and that is the same in our life. What are the middle 22 letters of your life? Are they in alignment with God being the beginning and the end? Because I think it's important for us to recognize that He already is. You see, He is the Alpha and the Omega and everything in between already. Whether or not you acknowledge the truth of that and live in the light and of it and in alignment with it or not. Your life and mine, they do not determine God's position. I think this is important for us to hold on to. Our lives do not determine God's position. Rather, God's position ought to determine our lives. We must orient to Him, not the other way around. You and I are not the Alpha and the Omega. We're not the beginning and the end and everything in between. The United States is not the Alpha and the Omega and everything in between. God is. Our desires in this world are not the Alpha and the Omega and everything in between. They're not the beginning and the end. They're not the meaning and the purpose of life. God is. Our victories, our joys, the things we rejoice over, these things are not the Alpha and the Omega. And neither, by the way, are our problems and our trials and our struggles. They're not the Alpha and the Omega and everything in between. God is. God is the beginning, God is the end, and God is everything in between. And he tells us, he goes on in that verse 8, he said he is the one who was and is and forever will be the Almighty. 
one who has all power. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He's going to write to this church in, in Ephesus and tell them of a thing that is most pressing for them to recognize. But he, he sets this on the foundation of this truth. I am what this world is all about. I am the beginning and the end. I am the one who is and who is and who was and is to come. The Almighty. The one who in verse 7 of Revelation we're told this and I think it behooves us to hear it aloud. Verse 7, behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. That means yours and mine. He goes on, even those who pierced him those who mocked him, those who beat him, those who spit upon him, those who ridiculed him, those who rejected him, even those who pierced him, the scripture says and goes on, and all tribes of the earth will wail or mourn on account of him. And John adds, even so, amen. So be it. That is what ought to happen. That is only right that it happened. Every eye will see him. They, you, Your eye one day, your eye will one day settle on the Alpha and the Omega, Jesus Christ. You will see him. He is coming in the clouds. He ascended from the earth. You remember after his resurrection in those days that he spent here and those apostles that he'd assembled and gave them those final instructions, earthly instructions, and he ascended into heaven and the angels came and said, you're going to see this same one come again in the same manner. Your eye is going to see the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the Almighty, the one that every other eye is going to set their eye upon. And I will tell you this, when my eye is set upon Jesus Christ, when he comes back, I won't need to look around and see what everyone else is looking at. They too will be looking at Jesus Christ and him alone. They might be calling for the mountains to fall upon them and hide them from him because they are not right with him and have rejected him. But every eye is going to see him. Every, the one, one of the things that unites all of the human race, whatever your tribe, whatever your citizenship, whatever your intelligence level, no matter who you are, one thing that unites us all is we are all going to one day set our eye upon the Alpha and the Omega, Jesus Christ. We're going to see him when he comes again. And so it is in this context that Jesus writes to the church at Ephesus and he calls out to them to notice something most important. You've abandoned your first love. This Alpha and Omega. You've abandoned your love of him. You've walked away. You've set it aside. But he begins and he gives them a number of commendations that we don't want to skip over. He does tell them, look, I know your works. I know them in verse 2. I know your toil. God is not, and the Lord Jesus Christ is not ignorant of our toil. And he wasn't ignorant of the toil in Ephesus either. He wasn't ignorant of their struggle. And that's what in the Greek, the word toil, it's it's a word, it's a state that's characterized by troubling circumstances. Troubling circumstances. And we look around in our own life, and there are a number of troubling circumstances. God says to us, I know them. 
I know your toil. I am aware of them. They do not escape my attention. I am the Alpha and the Omega, I have said. I am the Almighty. I know your works. I know your toil. And I know in the midst of that toil, I am aware of your patient endurance, which is a capacity to continue to bear up under difficult circumstances. God knew this was a church that had its troubles in the world. And the Lord Jesus Christ knows that all of us, every one of us, is going to have trouble in the world. He told us that we would. And so Jesus tells them, look, I know. I know. He sets this first before them. I know your trouble. I know your toil. And I know you are patiently enduring. He goes on and he tells them, and I know that you separate yourself from those who are evil, that you can't bear with them. I know you do not find the evil in the world in a way Jesus tells the church in Ephesus. I know you do not find the evil in the world a comfortable place to reside. So you separate yourself from it as much as you can. I see it. I recognize it. I acknowledge it. I know it's true. And by the way, this should be an attribute of all of God's people and certainly the church Individual churches, this should be an attribute common to us all, that we are separate as much as possible from sin. The Ephesian church, to its credit, had not grown accustomed to or desensitized to the sin that surrounded them. They had resisted it, at least in some measure, a measure acknowledgeable by the Lord himself, and he notes it. I know that you separate, and you can't bear it. I know your patience. I know your toil. I know you separate yourself as much as you can from sin. I know you've not grown accustomed to it. I know you're not desensitized to it. And I fear today, though, that many who call themselves Christian, many even churches who call themselves churches have done just that, grown quite comfortable and quite desensitized to the sin of the world and would not have this as a commendation from the Lord, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. We swim in it almost. And we don't push it away like we ought to. This is not what they're in trouble for. This is not what the Lord has against them. He acknowledges this right out of the gate. And I think it's important to understand this because of what he's going to tell them their issue is. Their issue is not that they have become like the world. Their issue is not that they are just swimming in sin and have grown accustomed to it and and desensitized to it as we are at such risk today of becoming because we don't measure our lives by Scripture like we should. At least I know I don't at all times. But today so many, because they, they don't, they, they do bear with sin. And they tolerate, as they say. Isn't that the word that we're supposed to use? Be tolerant. The politically correct sword that has been wielded with such deadly accuracy to the Christian cause in the world is that word, tolerance. It's a sword known as tolerance. Tolerate the sin. And by the way, this does not mean that we ought to cast aside the sinner. We ought to love them, care for them. Do what we can, treat them with dignity as a human being. But the sin must be set aside. Because if we tolerate it and we abide it, do you know what typically ends up happening? 
we end up having to endorse it. And we end up having to excuse it because through that sin, we often find worldly pleasure, worldly riches, worldly convenience, and that sin is what leads to it. And so now we have to call sin good, just like the Bible says we would. But this was not the, the Ephesians' problem. I want you, I, I, God, what she showed me was a people who stood strong against the sin of the culture in which they were living. I know that you don't bear it. I know your toil. I know your patient endurance, he says. I know that you faithfully follow me and that you separate yourself from the sin. Charles Spurgeon said it very simply in one of his messages. Faith works in us separateness from sinners. We're, we're different. Not better because we're something better than they are. We've been made different. We've been born again. And we don't see the world like the world does. Look, if you... If you look at the world and your answers to the questions of life are the same as that of the unbelieving world, you're in, you're in a place that you need to examine. If you don't, if, if the world doesn't look upside down to you when you look at it plainly, there's something that's probably missing in your heart. But this was not the problem that the Ephesians had. Jesus goes on and he commends them. You discern rightly the false teachers that are always present. I know that you don't bear with them. I know that you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know your, your discernment. You can recognize a false teacher when you see one, he says to the church in Ephesus. You're not easily deceived. You can recognize false preaching and teaching when you hear it. You can spot that charlatan from a mile away and you rightly have your defenses on alert any time that he or she opens their mouth. You can, you can discern it. You're rightly discerning that and seeing through the lies and the deception. You hear where their teaching breaks away from the truth of God and His Word. You hear it. You recognize it. You are on top of that. I know. He continues. These are wonderful things, by the way, for the Lord to acknowledge in a church, aren't they? You separate yourself from sinners. You don't bear with it. You haven't been, you haven't been desensitized to it. I know your patience and in the midst of your tribulation. And then he goes on in verse 3, talks about their steadfastness and bearing up for my name's sake. I acknowledge it. The Lord says, I see it. I know your works. I am the Almighty. I see all. I am all. The Lord says, in a sense, the reason for your patient endurance and steadfast bearing up, I recognize that in your heart and in your motive, it is for my name's sake. This is a wonderful commendation of the Ephesian church. You bear it and you do it all for my name's sake. You are concerned with the honor of my name among men. You continue in the struggle of this life as one of my people because there is a present concern for my name, not yours, but mine. You see, it's not your name that should concern us. 
except as our name is associated with the name of Christ and the name of God. We ought to desire a good name. Solomon tells us that, doesn't he, in Ecclesiastes? A good name is a treasure. Our name ought to be thought of well. I pray, I hope, that when people think of me, though they're going to have plenty of things to say that I have shortcomings, I pray essentially they say, there's a good name there. But I hope and I pray that my motivation for that is not so that my name might be good, but that my name, as it's associated with God's name, does not taint His in any way farther or greater than it already does. We ought to desire a good name, but again, may our desire for a good name rest upon a greater desire that the Lord's name be magnified and not slandered or otherwise harmed when we associate our names with His. And Jesus writes to the church in Ephesus, I know that your concern is for my name. I acknowledge it. I see it. And I see the patient endurance. I see that you don't grow weary in it. I see that you don't deal with the false prophets and that you see them for what they are. I see the separation that you'd choose to make between you and the sin of the world around you. It seems to me, after this commendation from the Lord, it seems clear to me that the church in Ephesus, that Ephesian church, if we would have been around at the time, at the time of John's writing, we would have looked at that church in Ephesus and we would have said, sound church. Good church. Solid church. And I don't know that we would have been wrong in our estimation. But that's what we would have said. We would have seen a people concerned with the Lord's name. We would have seen a people concerned with accurate uh, presentation of the gospel message and standing against false prophets. We would have seen a people concerned about the Lord. We would have seen them and said, this was a strong church. They weren't walking in open acceptance of sin or deception. They were theologically accurate and orthodox in their practice. I think men would have said of the church in Ephesus, now there is a good church. But then we move on to verse 4. And this is where we need to spend some time. I know you've abandoned your first love, the Lord says, in a sense. I, you've left it. <clears throat> you have abandoned it. You've walked away. You've left it behind. You've gone on in the Christian life having laid down the most fundamental component of the Christian life itself. A love for God that surpasses all the other loves in your life. You've left it. You've abandoned it. A love that you had Jesus says, at first. Do you remember that when you came to know the Lord and He saved you and you loved Him? I pray that after nearly four decades of being saved, that I know more today than I knew then. But I pray that I never walk away from that first love. 
of Christ and of God. In the Ephesians, Jesus doesn't say you're about to. He doesn't say you're in danger of doing this. He says you've abandoned it. He sees through the surface. He sees through what they don't. And by the way, when others examining and and considering the church in Ephesus and would have said sound church, I'm convinced that those in the church would have said the same thing. We are a sound church. Christ writes to them. He says, tell them this, John. They've lost, they've abandoned their first love. A first love that fosters a freedom from sin, not through coercion or force of any kind, except the force brought to bear by a love for God and for Christ. Not a coercion of, you better do this or else. Not a fear of what men will think or do, but a fear of what it means to not love Christ the way we ought to love Him. In a way, I think God is, or the Lord Himself is talking to Ephesus, writing to them, and he, in a way, I think He says something like this, you've expanded your minds, and yet you have at the same time shrunk your hearts somehow. You've grown in some ways, but you have pulled back in the most fundamental. Now listen, this is my, my opinion here, by all means necessary and available. Expand your understanding of God and His Word by all means available. But do not allow your heart to grow smaller while your mind grows larger. Don't allow that to happen. That We're going to end up receiving a letter from Christ, if not in written form, by the Holy Spirit, and He might come and convict us of this very thing. You've abandoned your first love. I know you can spot a false prophet. I get it. I see it. And I'm glad for that. I'm glad that you separate yourself from sin. I know that you're interested in my name. I I see all these things. I examine it all. But when I look deep down below the surface, I see an absence of the love that is necessary in your heart. As your mind takes in more and more of what God has done in Christ, make sure that your that that understanding and that knowledge grows both your mind and your understanding of God and just as importantly, your love for God. It's as though the church in Ephesus knew what they were supposed to do and were well versed in what they were supposed to do. Separate from the evil in the world, from the sin. Discern false prophets. Don't grow weary, but remain steadfast in the faith of God. Be interested in the Lord's name. They knew what to do, but but it was as though they had forgotten or no longer felt the why that they did it. We are not to do right things. Merely because they are right we are to do right things because we love God because you see what can be so easy to happen in our lives and in our hearts is that we become turned around in our thinking by an adversary who is clever and is more 
uh, capable than we are, we can, we can become in love with being right. Instead of being in love with God. And I know that's a fine line, and I know it's difficult, and it might feel like splitting hairs. But I'll tell you this, if you're in love with being right more than you are in love with God and Christ, you will begin defining right for what you want it to be. Because it's more important to you to be right than to be in love with God. And Jesus says to them, you've lost that first love. This loss of our first love, it will eventually overtake us if this is the, if this is the case. And we will lose even the what we're supposed to do with our life after some period of time having lost the why. But the what usually always falls after the why. Quote Spurgeon again, It is the loss of your first love that makes you seek the comfort of your bodies instead of the prosperity of your souls. Many good things to say Christ had for the church at Ephesus, yet here Christ reveals that which has already been lost and that which threatens all that remains. And we'll move on quickly. What's the remedy? He doesn't just tell them what's wrong. He doesn't just say you've lost your first love. Period. He tells them what the remedy is. And if you, in examining your heart and me examining mine, if, if there's a reality to the fact that maybe that first love, maybe we're not willing to say, or maybe it isn't true that we've lost it, but maybe it's waning. Maybe it's, it's, not, as, it's not burning as brightly as it did and has in the past at certain times. Well, what's the remedy? Christ doesn't just lay out the problem. He lays out the remedy. And the first step, verse 5, the first part of it, remember. Remember from where you have fallen. Remember what you were. Remember where you started. Remember what you have in me. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, Paul says to the Ephesians, isn't that interesting, to these Ephesians, he writes to these Ephesians and he tells them, remember that you were at that time, talking about when they were lost, you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Remember that. And then remember verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Remember. Remember when you were saved. Remember when you first found your love for me. Remember that moment. Remember your conversion. Remember when you began following me. Remember that. What is the remedy for losing your first love? Remember it. And he says, repent next. The remedy for losing our way after salvation is the same as the remedy for finding it in the first part. Repent. That word repent has been defined in many different ways. Ultimately, seems to me it is to change one way, one's way of life as a result 
as the result of a complete change of thought and attitude with regard to sin and to righteousness. So it is a change of life. It is a, it is a change of way of living, yes. Some, some have forgotten that middle part. You, you change the way you live as a result of being changed in your mind and heart about sin and righteousness. You don't just make up your mind to do it. Your, your mind has been changed so that you want to do it. So remember, step one, repent. Step two and three, return to the first works. Go back to the first works. Have you ever lost your keys? Or maybe your wallet? And, and you can't find it? You've, you've torn the house up. You're looking all over for it. Maybe it's something else. What's the, what's the piece of advice you often get? Where was the last place you had it? Where was the last place you saw it? Start there. Start trying to put, put the pieces together. Follow the breadcrumbs. Well, if you've lost your first love, let me ask you, where was the last place you had it? When was the last time? Where did you see it last? I will tell you this. It is not a new place that you need to find if you have lost your first love. It's not a new place that you need to find. It is a return to the place you have previously walked with God in Christ. It's not new ground. Said old well-worn, I pray, path through this world that has walked the path with God in Christ, where you wake up in the morning and you feel His presence. And I'm not talking about some spiritual mountaintop all the time. We live, we live in a world that is difficult. And Jesus said that, didn't He, to the Ephesians? I know your toil. I know your strive. I know, I know this is difficult, but, but you've lost your first love. And you might say, how can I know if I've lost my first love? I, I, I think you know. I think in our hearts we know. And I think it's a constant battle in this life. But if you've lost it, you've abandoned it, and you want to find it again, and by the way, all of this assumes that you had it in the first place, does it not? How can you abandon what the, what you did not first have? How can you lose what you did not first possess? So this assumes the first love was there at one time. And when we lose it, the advice must be to go back to where we found it. Do the first works. Read your Bible. Pray. Surround yourself with others who are believers and followers of Christ. Do the things that you know you ought to do. Not just to be right again, but to, to find again that path of life where the, the love of God and love for Christ motivated and lightened all that you did. Do not set yourself up for failure with the things you watch, the people you spend time with, the things you read, the things you allow yourself to ponder that lead you away from God. Do the first works. You've lost your love, your love of me, he says. You've lost that first love. It no longer lights the path to you. The other things do. But look, there are no shortcuts in the Christian life to a close Fellowship with God. So do the first works. 
There's a reason in Scripture that God so often repeats Himself. We all need a new instruction. We need to be reminded of those that are already given. Why do this? And I'll close here shortly. Why, why is any of this important? Why go down this path, though? What is so concerning? Aren't we, aren't we orthodox, the Ephesian church might say? Aren't we? God, Lord, you yourself told us that we can spot a deceiver, that we've separated ourselves from sin. You yourself, Lord, said that we endure pain and difficulty and trial for your name's sake and that we aren't growing weak. You told us these things about it. Why is it so important that we go down this path and acknowledge the fact that we've lost our first love? Why is this path so necessary? And the answer is because the Lord knows what's at stake. It can be painful to remember from where we have fallen, can't it? It can be painful. Why would we go down that path if we aren't careful to follow the plan of remedy Christ gives? Remembering can actually discourage us. We must not allow this to happen. What's at stake is worth the path. It can be difficult. It can be painful to remember. And if we leave it there in remembering where we once were when we had the love of Christ in our heart the way we ought to, that can be a hard thing, very similar to the time when we got saved. That that remember or that understanding and light comes and understanding comes to our heart that we're separated from God. But we ought not to stop there. That's not the only step to the remedy. You have to go from remembering to repenting. Repentance is like rain that washes away our pride, yet we so infrequently pray for such rain. We'd rather the pride remain. Remember, remember your first love and how God's way, God's will, was all that really mattered to you because of your love for Him. And repent and let the rain of repentance wash away all of the filth that has been allowed to take the place of the love that you had for God in the first place. It can be a humbling thing to repent. It can be a difficult thing to remember. It can feel like we've lost ground to return to the first works. We want something bigger, something more grand, some spiritual mountain to climb. But such is not the path that the Lord gives. He says, remember, repent, and return. But why should we heed this call? Because he knows what's at stake. The Lord said he will come and take the, the, the lampstand. If you don't, if you don't fix this, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. And at the end of chapter 1, he tells us what that is. That is the church. I'm going to remove it. That's what's at stake. Why should we go down this difficult path when it seems on the surface that everything is fine? Because of what is at stake. The Lord has promised that we, He will never cast aside those He knows. He's promised it. We can be assured of it. But He has, He is not writing here to individual people. He is writing here to individual churches.
And when enough people in an individual church have lost their first love, enough that Christ sends them a letter acknowledging and saying this is the case, then that church is at great risk. There is no promise anywhere in the New Testament that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ will, be a, will abide where we are. The promise is it will be somewhere. Jesus said, I'm going to come and get her. My bride, I will come for. But he doesn't promise that it will be here. History is littered with countless churches, both known and unknown, who have fallen by the wayside when the Lord took their lampstand from its place. This is what's at stake. Warned in Scripture, and almost certainly warned directly by the Spirit Himself that they were at risk, that they had lost their first love, but refusing to follow the remedy of remember, repent, and return. And some might think, maybe this is a passing thought, if not one that's first in your mind. Some might think, well, that that's not going to be my problem. I'm saved and I know that when I die, I will go to be with the Lord. So why be so concerned about the possibility that one day the church I'm a part of might cease to exist? And we are back now, if that is the thought that ever crosses your mind or heart, we are back now to the one who understands God as Alpha and Omega and everything in between. He's everything. Not you. Him. If that is our thinking, and I don't suspect it is for us, perhaps, but others maybe, but if it is, you've got a long way to go to return to your first love, but you can. Maybe you've lost your desire to please the one that you love. You've lost the desire to share his love with others that he has given to you. You, you are looking at the world and your life with a focus on yourself rather than the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. And once again, everything in between. Augustine said this, He loves thee too little. Speaking to God in prayer, God, He loves thee too little who loves anything together with thee which He loves not for thy sake. Do not substitute a love for the things of God for a love of God. If that's the case, it won't be long and you will lose your first love and you may be orthodox, you may be theologically pristine, but you will be heartless and without a love that animates and sends you down a path of making a difference in the life of those around you. And if that's the case for you, then the, the, the remedy is the same for you as it was for them. Remember, repent, return. I believe as I close, it's amazing how similar we are to those who have come before us. It's amazing to me how similar we are to those who have come before us. These people lived 2,000 years ago. But there's no doubt, how, who knows how many times the Lord could write this same letter to us, to churches that exist yet today. I think this should both warn us and encourage us. Others have faced what we face. Others have perhaps lost their first love. But if there was no hope of return, Jesus would have never left this letter and he never would have given them the remedy. There is a remedy. So it should warn us. And yet at the same time, it should encourage us 
should warn us if this is the case in our lives. It should encourage us that it doesn't have to be. The enemy works every day in our life to remove us from our first love, to remove it from our hearts. We can go on for many days and even years like this, doing the right things, but feeling little or less and less of our first love in doing them. But this warning is not the final sentence. It's not judgment that has been passed. It is a warning that is given. The judgment will come one day. It might come if you don't follow the path of remedy. So it must not be ignored, this warning, but it must not be understood as the end of the matter, because it isn't. I pray it is the beginning of the path to remedy, if this is the case in our hearts, that we remember. We remember being lost. We remember the Lord saving us and giving us peace. We remember Him setting our feet on a rock and establishing our goings. And then beyond that, we remember the times that He's been with us and been near us and watched over us and cared for us. And we remember that though this life gives us difficulty and trial and hardship, that He has always been there and that He sent His Son to die for us so that we might have life in Him. And we remember that. And that remembering brings us to a place of repentance. Lord, I'm sorry for forgetting these things. I'm sorry for doing these other things in a sense. I'm I'm glad, Lord, that you have made it so that I can at least stand for you in some way. But I know that I'm at risk if my first love is lost. And I know that those around me are at risk. So, Lord, I thank you for reminding me, and I repent today, and I want to change my attitude, and I ask you to change my attitude about my life. That I wouldn't just go on and on doing the right things but not feeling the love for you that I want to feel. I thank you that it's not the final sentence that you're giving to me, but it is a warning to my heart that sentence is coming if I ignore it. But I understand it's not the end of the matter. So I pray for us and for all who at various times in our life as we as we walk through this world and we wax and we wane because of our sin and we allow the coldness of our own heart and the trials of life maybe to, to rob us, to, to pull from us the, the love of Christ that we ought to have there, that we would remember, that we would repent, and that we would return. And finally, remember the last thing I want to share with you. It's written to a church. This letter is written to a church. It is written to individuals in a sense because individuals make up a church, but it's written to a church. And so we pray for ourselves that our first love would not wane, and if it has, that we would remember, repent, and return. But we pray for and encourage others as well that as a church, our first love would not be dim. And that light would not go out. And that when people walk through the door, they sense it. I pray that when people walk through the door, they sense rightness of theology, though there'd be a lot that wouldn't agree with us. I pray that they would come in and see that we have reason for what we think and believe. But I hope and pray above that, that they sense these people love God and their love for God draws them to love one another. That's the difference. And Jesus knew it. And he starts with this Ephesian church. He tells them, he reminds them, look, I'm I'm glad that you're right about so many things. But you're in great, great danger having abandoned your first love.